All right. I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. If you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Let me say something really quickly. That we as a local church, we have been studying through the book of Acts. And it just so happens that the next passage that we have come to in the book of, book of Acts together gives us a glimpse of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it just so happens today that we're going to do two things at the same time. We're going to continue our study together of the book of Acts. We're not going to going to skip a beat this morning. We're going straight through. And yet at the same time, we are about to celebrate and worship the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus. How's that for the sovereignty of God on Easter morning? This is, the, this is God's sovereign leadership of, of Grace Community Church. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word today. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we want to humble ourselves in your presence. The first thing, Lord, we want to say today, God, is that we don't deserve to be in this place today. Lord, we don't deserve, we're sinful people. We don't deserve to gather freely and to worship your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, look at what you've done, Lord, for every single one of us. God, you have blessed us. Lord, you've allowed us to gather in this place today. And Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we're able to freely gather today and worship your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would exalt your son today by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would lift up the name of Jesus, that you would give us all, Lord, a glorious glimpse of your son, high and exalted. Lord, we read in your word and you say that an hour is coming when the, those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Lord, we ask for that today, God. Let, let dead sinners today hear the voice of the resurrected Christ and let those who hear live. Lord, save sinners through the preaching of your word, through the preaching of your word, grant faith today, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Lord, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, both to preach your word and to hear it today. Lord, come use your word in our life to exalt your son. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter nine. Today we're going to be digging into the most famous conversion in the history of Christianity. And this conversion, like every conversion, reveals the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this for a moment. I want to make sure we're connecting some dots on Easter morning. Okay? This is a dot we got to connect. We got to learn to connect these two things together. Historic Orthodox Christianity, okay? And that means the church, the real church, has always connected the resurrection of Jesus with the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus. They've always been two sides of the same coin. And so for 2,000 years, 
For Christians to claim and to celebrate that Jesus lives is also at the same time to celebrate that Jesus reigns. Not only is our claim that a man died and came back to life, the Christian claim is that that man is seated at the right hand of God and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We got to learn to think those things right beside each other. So I, I want you to know that. Okay. Our claim, Christianity's claim is that the tomb is empty. But at the same time, our claim is that the throne of God is not. The tomb of em- is empty. The throne is not. The throne is occupied at the right hand of God. Jesus lives and Jesus reigns. And today, as we dig into this conversion, we're going to get a glimpse of what this resurrected king has been doing for over 2,000 years as he has reigned and ruled over his church. We're going to get a glimpse of the power of resurrected King Jesus. And we're going to see this in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Let me say this really quickly. There's some really unique things about this conversion. Okay? They're unique in the sense that they're not repeated. And, and our conversion to Christ is, is in some ways different than what we're about to read today. And we're going to talk about that. There's some uniqueness to this conversion account. But at the same time, there's some fundamental things in this story about the conversion of the Apostle Paul that serve as a paradigm for us. And it illustrates for us what true conversion to Christ always looks like. And more than anything else, what I want us to understand, even before we read this passage together, is that true conversion and true Christianity has never been about affirming religious facts. Amen? It has never been about affirming religious facts, even about Jesus. It has never been about merely joining a a church. It has never been about merely praying a prayer. It has never been about merely living a religious life. It has always been, from the very beginning, an encounter with Jesus Christ. A personal encounter with the living and the resurrected Lord. And we're going to see that today in this conversion account. The Apostle Paul. So this is a heads up of what I want us to look for as we read our passage together this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, but Saul. I want to stop right there and just mention this really quick. Saul is the Hebrew name for the Apostle Paul. They are the same person. Paul is his Greek name. Saul is his Hebrew name. So we're reading about what we know and who we know as the Apostle Paul. Let's pick it up. But Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly 
a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. We're going to see three big points emerge as we study through this text together. Let me give them to you on the front end. First, we are going to see, we're going to notice who Saul was prior to him meeting Jesus. And we're going to find out why that's a really important point. And then mainly this morning, we're going to zone in and dig into this personal encounter that Saul has with the resurrected Christ. And then we're going to finish today and we're going to, we're going to step back and we're going to take notes about some of the effects that this encounter with the risen Jesus had on the Apostle Paul. Let's start with that first point. Okay. This is crucial for us to see this morning. It's crucial for our understanding of the Christian gospel. This provides us with the appropriate background. Who was Saul before he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why it's important to get this right, okay, is that the condition in which Saul was in before he meets Jesus exalts the power of Jesus Christ to turn this man in the absolute opposite direction. So this is foundational, okay, important for us to understand that on the road to Damascus, in this holy moment, Jesus did not meet a seeker. Okay? Jesus did not meet a seeker on the road to Damascus. Saul was not going hard after Christ. In fact, what we're going to find out is it was the exact opposite. It was the exact opposite. Already in the book of Acts, we've been introduced twice to this man named Saul. And so I want you to think back at the end of chapter 7... Saul was present and approving of that murder of that early Christian leader named Stephen. Those who stoned him laid their garments at the feet of this man named Saul. Just a few verses later, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we find this man and he is the ringleader of a citywide persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. He's kicking down doors and entering into houses and dragging men and women to jail to have them prosecuted for Christianity, for believing in Jesus. And look at what it says in verse one. He's still at it. Okay, the man is still at it. Verse one. Luke tells us that he is still breathing threats and murder Against the disciples of the Lord. So we have a highly motivated, very zealous Jewish Pharisee. 
And he's filled with hate towards Christianity. Okay? And I want us to understand that. Jesus is about to flip someone who hates him. Okay? And in fact, I want this to be vivid to you. How motivated is Saul? Well, he's filled with so much hate that the man is willing to travel 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. He is willing to walk for one straight week on foot through mountainous terrain just to take Christians and make that week-long journey back to Jerusalem to have Christians tried and executed. Okay? He is filled with hostility towards Christianity and towards Christ. He is not a seeker. He is not a seeker. And this is an important background for us because that's the paradigm, right? Because that same background holds true for every conversion to Christianity. Every single one. So let's learn this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not convert seekers. Jesus does the seeking. Okay? Jesus always has. Jesus always will be the initiator of salvation. And we learn that in this story in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. Saul is not running towards Jesus. Saul is running away from Jesus. And yet Jesus draws near. Jesus seeks this man out. Salvation is always like this. Salvation is being sought by Christ before we ever turn and begin to seek him. And that doctrine of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and salvation, it gets really clear when we understand that our state is the same as Saul in this passage in Acts 9. And I want us to see that. As we look at this man, we can have some disconnects. Disconnects that sound like this. Well, man, that was evil. He shouldn't have done that. He's murdering Christians. And, and man, that was evil. And I would never do that. And we can put some, some distance between us and this man. And we can feel a lot more safe than we actually should feel. At the end of the day, the Bible teaches us, every single one of us, that we are filled with the same hostility that we see playing out in Saul's life. Every single one of us. This is the depravity of man. This is who we are apart from Christ. We are hostile. Okay? We're not going after Jesus. We're not seekers of Jesus. We're not even neutral. We are hostile. Now, sure, that can be qualified in several different ways. Sure it can. Sure, that hostility plays out in different forms and different personalities and different types of people. Sure it does. Some are more actively opposed to Christ. Some are even involved with persecuting Christians. Sure they are. But that same hostility is also shown to that passive indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ and His commandments. That's that same hostility in every human heart. The Bible tells us that we are no different than this man living a life of rebellion and opposition to Jesus. Let's listen close. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind 
doing evil deeds. I wonder if you've come to know this about yourself. This is, this is what the Word of God says about us. And I wonder if you've come to this knowledge of yourself that you are not a good person. God says you are not a good person. God says that every single one of us, there's a part of us apart from the grace of Jesus Christ that we're hostile to God. We are hostile to God. And listen, we, there's objective proof of that in our life. Because it's not just this idea that we're hostile. We do evil deeds. How do we know that we're hostile to King Jesus? We disobey Him. We sin. We refuse to bow the knee. We, we, we refuse to obey Jesus as our King. We are not good people. We are hostile and rebellious to Christ. This is what God's Word says. And listen, there are no exceptions to this. No exceptions. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Sometimes we can have some really bad ideas that we've been you know, running after Christ since the moment we were born and then all of a sudden at conversion we just kind of tripped over the finish line. It never happens like that. From the moment you were born, you were not seeking God. No one understands. No one seeks God. You are going the other direction. And Jesus flipped you. If you're a Christian, Jesus converted you. Jesus turned you around in the exact opposite direction. So let's be real careful okay, this morning that we're not too quick to pat ourselves on the back because we've never killed a Christian. Because we've never involved, been involved with persecuting Christians. Every single one of us are rebels. We are rebels against the highest of kings. We live a life of opposition against the one with all authority. No one seeks God. No one seeks God. Romans 3 goes on to say, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And this is that biblical dose of realism that we talk about. This is, this is one of those verses in Scripture. You, you won't see this stamped on a coffee cup. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so we don't come to the Bible for just that quick word of encouragement for the day. We come to see ourselves and see things and see the universe as it truly is. And what God is saying to every single one of us is we're rebellious. We are wicked. We do not seek Jesus. We're all guilty rebels. And the good news that this passage holds out for every single one of us. Is it gives us a glimpse of Jesus drawing near to a rebellious man. To a man who is running away from him. Jesus is about to draw near in sovereign power and sovereign grace. And Jesus is about to turn his life in the exact opposite direction. Think about this. What we're about to dig into. Saul is hunting Christians. He does not know that Jesus is hunting him. He has no idea 
that he is being sought out, pursued by one stronger than he, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And every conversion to Christianity is the same way. And we could raise hands all over this room of how Jesus came and he sought us out and he drew near to us and he convicted us of our sins when we weren't even looking for it. This is who he is. This is who he's always been. And so I want us to notice the real Jesus that draws near in Acts 8. Let's just really quickly identify who who, who does not show up in Acts 9. Who does not show up in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus is the history channel Jesus. Think about that. That historical man that led a movement that died. Not him. That's not who we're going to read about. The Jesus that shows up in Acts 9 is not the seeker-sensitive Jesus of American Christianity. That's not who we're going to find in Acts 9. The Jesus that draws near and tells you what you want to hear about yourself. That's not who we're going to meet. We're going to meet the resurrected Lord of glory, the real Jesus. And we're going to ask God to remind us all across this room, give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Help us to behold Him today. In the power of his resurrection. Let's read it again. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. First, I want us to notice that light from heaven in verse 3. And I want you to try to picture yourself there. Filled with hate, you got a plan, you're highly motivated, you're at the end of a week-long journey, and then all of a sudden, a Like a spotlight from heaven shines down and it shines right on you. And you're thinking, okay, got my attention now. Spotlight from heaven shining on Saul. This is the glory of Christ. I want us to understand that. This is not just some some weird light. This This is the radiance that comes from Jesus. This is His glory. This is who Jesus is, not the History Channel Jesus. The Jesus that shines with a radiant brightness. This is his glory, but it's just a little bitty glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's just a little bitty unveiling of the glory of Christ. Paul tells this story of his conversion two more times in the book of Acts. Acts 22 And Acts 26. And in both of those accounts, we learn additional details about this light that we don't see in Acts 9. So I want us to turn there really quick. And I want us to note these two details. Acts 22, verse 6. Listen close and see if you can pick this out. He says this. As I was on my way 
and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around them. So he adds that detail in Acts 22. We learn that this happened at noon. And that's significant. That's significant. We'll talk about why in a moment. This is the time of the day when the sun shines in its full strength. Okay? Noonday. The sun at its highest point. The sun shining in full strength. And then turn to Acts 26. See if you can pick this up in verse 13. Paul says this. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun. So I want us to think about this. You ever thought about what Jesus looks like? What is he like? What are you like, Lord? You ever thought about that? Try to picture the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's all kind of ways where you can go wrong and carve an image made up in your own mind. So let's start right here. Let's start right here. This is a game changer. Not the History Channel Jesus. We're being reminded that if our eyes could see Him, we would see one who shines brighter than the Middle Eastern sun in the middle of the day. This is Christ, the glorified, resurrected King of the universe. This is a game changer. This is pushing out all those low views of Jesus. All those casual glimpses that we've accumulated over the years of Jesus. He is the Lord of glory. He shines brighter than the sun. So think about that. If we could see Him right now, right now, if we could see Jesus Side by side with the sun. The brightness of Jesus would overpower the sun. It would be like a spotlight side by side with a birthday cake candle. This is the majesty of Christ. That sun, if you look at it when you go outside today, it will burn your eyes out. It will burn your eyes and that is just a little bitty shadow that's supposed to give you a massive glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible teaches us that there's coming a day in the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal city where Jesus is going to replace the sun. There will be no more need for sun because the lamb will be the light. How's that for a glimpse of Jesus today? Shining brighter than the sun in the Middle East at noon. He's the Lord of glory. And in Acts 9, Saul's just getting a little bitty glimpse of this glorified God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be very careful as, as we're studying this, as we're hearing the Word of God preached, that this is a time right now, as we're confronted with the truth from God's Word, to repent of any lowly, unworthy thoughts that we have of Jesus. All those times where we find ourselves bored with Christ or indifferent to Christ, we're not seeing Him like that, I promise you. We're not. We have to repent of these low views of Jesus Christ. So we have the light in verse 3. In verse 4, Saul, in addition to the light of the glory of Christ, he hears the voice 
of the Son of God. He hears the voice of Jesus. That's the voice that created all things. He hears the voice of Jesus. By Him all things were made. That's the voice of Christ booming from the heavens. Notice the first thing that He, that he hears. Saul. Saul. The voice of the King. The voice of the resurrected one. Calls Him by name. He calls His name. He calls His name. Is that not an encouraging reminder to us? This is how the King builds His church. One convert at a time. Not mass produced in a factory, but He deals one on one with sinners. And every single person who has ever been converted to Christ has been personally called by the resurrected God-man. Not in the sense that we heard a booming voice from heaven, but in the sense that we heard that effective call of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Every single Christian has been sovereignly, personally, effectively, and individually called by King Jesus. Now, is that not a glorious glimpse of Christ? That the highest of kings condescends and begins to deal with us one-on-one -on -one in our sins. We sing a song at Grace Community Church and we worship Christ that He's the King of glory. And yet at the same time, He's also the King of grace, the high and exalted one, drawing near in mercy and calling Saul by name. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus has been doing at the right hand of God. This is what Jesus is still doing. At the right hand of God. In verse 5. Chapter 9 verse 5. Saul asked who the voice was. That was speaking to him. And the answer to that question. Became the most penetrating words. That ever entered into Saul's ears. Verse 5, the answer to the question was this, I am Jesus, I am Jesus. Now I want us to remember who we're talking about. When we talk about who's the man that heard those words, that's that hostile one. Saul is that hostile one that hated Christ, hated Christians. And as far as Saul was concerned, he believed that Jesus, listen close, was a dead, blaspheming Jewish carpenter. That's, who, that's what he thought about Christ, about Jesus. Jesus is dead. Jesus is lowly. Jesus was apostate. And then all of a sudden, these words thunder from the heavens. I am Jesus. Think about that. Think about that holy moment. Think about that holy moment. Think of the power of Jesus Christ that in a, in a millisecond in His life, His entire worldview, all of His presuppositions about what He's always thought and what He's always thought about Jesus. Jesus came and He tore them down in three words. I am Jesus. Think about that. He's everything in his mind is, wait a second, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. 
And the one whom he thought was dead is speaking to him from heaven and shining brighter than the sun. I am Jesus. This is the power of Christ. He can tear down presuppositions in three words. This is the power of the resurrected God man. I promise you this. Whatever small thoughts about Jesus that he had prior to this encounter, he didn't have them anymore. Those words penetrated the core of who Saul was and it changed reality as he knew it in a moment. In a moment. And I want us to know this about our resurrected Lord Jesus. He still has the power to do this. This is still who he is. This is still who He is. And we need to worship Him today. He is still able. King Jesus, the resurrected one. Not just a real religious idea. He's the living and reigning King. And He is able to penetrate and tear down. The hardest opposition is nothing to King Jesus. He can tear right through it. Listen, even... even uh, uh, worldviews exactly opposed to Jesus Christ. You're an atheist? No problem. You're a, you're a naturalist? No problem. You're a Muslim? No problem. King Jesus tear, can tear it down in a moment. I am Jesus. And everything that Saul thought he knew to be true was revealed to be a lie. And he was confronted with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in a moment of time. And one of the things that this means for us, that Jesus has this power to draw near, to tear down presuppositions, to get our attention. One of the things that that means is that no one, and I mean no one, is beyond his reach. No one. And that has at least two applications. That means that no one is hopeless. No one is hopeless in the sense that no one's sins are too much for Jesus. No one. And the question for you this morning is, will you humble yourself and bring your sins to the only one that can save you? No one is hopeless. No one is beyond his reach. But you know, there's another application to that. Because Jesus reigns and lives at the right hand of God, it also means that no one is safe. Saul was not planning on becoming a Christian on the road to Damascus. It wasn't in the plans that he had drawn up for his life. And then, and then all of a sudden, this man was torn down with this experience in the presence of Christ. No one is safe. Do you understand that about yourself? You are not able to build walls strong enough to keep Jesus out. You are not able. He will tear them down. He is able to tear them down. You can't build them tall enough. You can't build them uh, deep enough to keep him out. He's the resurrected Lord. So whatever presuppositions that you feel so safe in, so secure in, Listen to me. 
Jesus can tear them down in three words. I am Jesus. And you need to be warned by that. Many, many people in this room have been confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ when they had no plans on meeting Him. And all of a sudden they find themselves falling under the conviction of sin. Had no plans for it, but they feel unclean before the Lord Jesus Christ. And their eyes are open to this glorious one, the resurrected one, the God-man. My question for you today is, will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself and acknowledge the power of Christ? Don't be a fool today and bank on, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. If he shines a spotlight on me from heaven and screams at me out of the heavens that he is Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus then. People that think about think like that, they, they close their eyes in death and they and, and they wake up in hell forever because they live a life of rebellion to Jesus Christ. Don't bank on that. Are you willing to humble yourself and acknowledge that he is mightier than you? Are you willing to humble yourself and ask this resurrected God-man to reveal Himself to you? This is Jesus. I am Jesus. In a, in a millisecond, everything changed for the Apostle Paul. Lastly, I want us to notice that we see some effects that mark this man after this encounter with Christ. And I believe that, that we can see this as a paradigm, that these are distinguishing marks of true conversion. This is what it looks like when somebody really meets Jesus. There's discernible marks. Jesus leaves His mark. And I want us to see a few of these this morning. First, I want us to, to see that Saul realized that he was wrong about Jesus. We've already mentioned that with those words, I am Jesus, the one whom he thought was dead, was alive and speaking from heaven. And he was confronted with the reality, listen, that he was not just a little bit wrong, but that he was completely and totally wrong. And that's what it looks like to be converted to Christ. To come to a place in your life where you say, I was completely and totally wrong. Not I had 95% of things right and I was pretty much a good person. And then this last little 5% fell into place. Saul came to a place in his life where he realized that he was completely wrong. And he could not have been more wrong than he was. He was wrong about Jesus. He was wrong about the one before whom every human being will stand in his presence and give an account. He was wrong about Christ. Becoming a Christian means starting right there. That we confess that we have not always sought Him. That we have not always served Him. That we have, that we have had low pathetic thoughts of King Jesus at different times. And becoming a Christian means we repent. And we behold the glory of Christ. We repent of all those low views of Jesus, of, of those thoughts that Jesus is boring, and we embrace reality that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is king, that Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. He is Lord. 
And we see this happen. Jesus draws near. And that mindset falls to the ground. But that's not the only one. We also see that Saul was wrong about himself. He was wrong about Christ. And he was wrong about himself. And every person that's ever been truly converted goes through both of those stages. Wrong about Jesus, wrong about sin. Wrong about Jesus and wrong about sin. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see those words, I am Jesus. But we also see that that is not all that was said. Jesus goes on to say these words. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Think about that on the road to Damascus. Think about those stinging words of conviction. Jesus just told that man that he was a murderer. Think about that. Think about that switch, that flip in his life. Is that switch going off for you? Do you freely admit you have not always served him? You are a rebellious sinner. Do you admit that? Are you still stuck in this false doctrine that I'm a good person? Mama was a Christian. Daddy was a Christian. I've always been a Christian. It never works like that. And one of the things that we know about human beings is that we have a long history of thinking that we're really good people until we're confronted with perfect righteousness. As long as we see that that standard is way down here and we're not bad as so-and-so or hadn't done what so-and-so has done, we feel really safe. We feel really good about ourselves. But being converted to Christ, we're exposed to the standard of perfect righteousness. And guess what? Don't feel so good anymore. In the presence of righteousness, we see our sin. That's exactly what happened to Saul. In the presence of Jesus. One who thought that he was the most devout Jew around. The servant of God. In a moment, he is made aware that he is a filthy murderer in the sight of God. Think about that switch flipping. Has that happened in your life? The man thought he was good. The man thought he was a servant of God. And then he woke up to the reality that he was a criminal before God, living a life of rebellion to King Jesus. And so not only was he awestruck at the glory of Christ, that Jesus ain't who I thought he was. He's also awakened that he is unclean in the presence of righteousness. A saving encounter with Christ that always exposes sin. True conversion always exposes sin. And this is so foundational that the gospel will never make sense to you. Until you understand sin and guilt and depravity and judgment. It's not good news that Jesus is the Savior. That He will save His people from their sins if we're really not that bad. Gospel will never make sense to you until your eyes are open that you are rebellious. That you are under wrath. And no one, no one. Even if they claim to be a Christian for 40 years, no one is truly a Christian 
No one who has truly encountered Christ walks away from Jesus feeling clean and feeling fine. No one. No one. It always happens that sin is exposed in His holy presence. It's a mark of conversion. Last thing we see is that Saul was humble in the presence of Christ. And this is easy to imagine, right? What does he do when the spotlight goes off and the booming voice comes from heaven? No surprise that we read these words in voice, verse 4. Falling to the ground. Falling to the ground. So we have a self-righteous Pharisee. And in a moment, he's laying prostrate on his face before King Jesus. And all across the room, I see my brothers and sisters, and, and I'm even reminding myself. And I hope it's easy for you to see yourself in this place, humbled at the feet of Jesus. Having your sin exposed. Being, the glory of Christ being revealed to you. And the reflex of the soul is to bow to Him and to worship and to humble yourself in His holy presence. This is the posture of humility, the posture of submission. And really, it's just the rightful place of creatures in the presence of the Creator, the uncreated one. This is where we belong, face down, prostrate, in submission to King Jesus. And this is the mark that Jesus leaves on the Apostle Paul. And when Jesus is done with him in this encounter, he'll never be the same again. And that's what real conversion is. I was told many times after my conversion to Christ at 20 years old, Dustin, you're going through a religious phase. Everybody goes through it and you'll get over it. Close family members told me that. And that's only true for nominal Christianity. It's never true for a true conversion to Christ. That when someone encounters the living one, the resurrected Lord, they are never the same. They're made a new man. They're made a new woman. They're given a new heart. They're given the Holy Spirit. Never the same again. So we see Paul face down before Christ in the posture of humility. And as we close, I want to remind us that's exactly what Jesus demands of you. And that's right, is it not? That's our rightful place before Him. You are commanded to humble yourself. You are commanded to confess your sin. You are commanded to bow the knee. You are commanded to express the truth about Jesus. He is Lord. And we're even told in the Word of God, it is true that you can have small views of Jesus in this world. But we're told very explicitly that in eternity, no one will have small views of Jesus. If you don't think Jesus is God, you will not think that way in eternity. If you don't think that Jesus is the resurrected Lord, you might think that way now, but you will not think that way in eternity. And we have the opportunity to humble ourselves now because we're warned that there's coming a day where every knee will bow. And guess what? Every tongue will confess 
And they will not say that Jesus was the, the humble carpenter from Nazareth. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And they will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the call. The right response to the resurrection. The right response to the enthronement of Jesus is to humble ourselves. To confess our sins. And from this place of true knowledge of Jesus... Conviction of sin and humility. This man was made willing to obey whatever Jesus commanded him. From that place, anything that Jesus said from that moment going forward, it was yes, Lord. It was yes, Lord. This was a life changing encounter. This is the power of Christ. Jesus drew near and he revealed himself. Jesus drew near and he, and he brought conviction of sin. Jesus drew near and he humbled this man. And not only that, Jesus drew near and he made Saul willing to obey him. He really does have that much power. Listen to this verse in Psalm 110, verse 3. It says this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Think about that. What kinds of things happen when Jesus flexes his might? When Jesus shows his power? Psalm 110 says his people offer themselves freely. The old King James says that, that we are made willing on the day of his power. So this is a glimpse. Conversion. This is what it looks like for King Jesus to raise that royal scepter and rule at the right hand of God. As He subdues sinners' hearts. He subdues us. And when we, when we get saved, when we're sought out by Christ, this is how Jesus, King Jesus, builds His kingdom. This is how He shows His power. And Saul, he was never the same again. And I want to encourage you here today that that's good news for every single one of us. That that's a real offer for you. That an encounter with Jesus Christ will, 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 will make you different for the rest of your life. You can become a new man. You can become a new woman through this life-changing encounter with Christ. This is good news for us. That we have a Christ and He's not waiting on us to take the first move to Him. He's seeking us out. And as He does that, we yield. We submit to Him. We humble ourselves. And the reason that Jesus can change you, the reason that Jesus can transform you, is because He's alive. He's not an idea. He's not a family religion. He's a real person. He's reigning at the right hand of God and He has all power in heaven and on earth. He is risen, He is alive, and He is Lord. And this is good news for every person that needs His rescue. And so my final encouragement to you today is whoever you are and whatever you're here, that you would not settle for anything less than this. We live in a land of nominal Christianity. 
to name the name of Jesus, but have no power, no transformation, no regeneration, no new birth. And I plead with you that you would not settle for that. That you would not settle for nominal Christianity and false conversion, but that you would only settle for the real thing. And the real thing is not joining a church, not living a religious life, not praying a prayer, not even doing all kinds of good works. The real thing always begins with a personal encounter with King Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? Don't settle for anything less than a personal knowledge of the resurrected Lord. We'll close with Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is the promise of God's word to us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we honor you today as our king and we give you praise, God. You are the God of salvation. You're the righteous God and the Savior. And for every single one of us, Lord, Grace Community Church, you could have exalted your glorious power in our life in judging us throughout eternity for our sins. But Lord, you have given us grace. And you've exalted your glorious power in saving us from our sins and pouring all of our punishment on your son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the strength of our Savior that overcame death, that defeated our strongest enemy. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would exalt your power even this day. And that you would call sinners to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.